0: hello you're listening to the lament configuration podcast it's a podcast about the shit that makes us sad i'm your host julia Graffaire. i'm a graphic novelist and with me is my co-host
1: gretchen felker martin
0: horror writer and film critic and today we would like to talk to you about bad sex writing
1: it's a topic
0: yeah it's a topic that really interests both of us because we love to write about sex, uh, as we talked about, I think last week. And it's a topic that a lot of people are uncomfortable with and kind of like bring their insecurities to the conversation in a really annoying way.
1: Yeah, uh, I've found that a lot of people basically turn into like a, an 11 year old who's been conditioned by all their friends to snicker whenever anyone says butt or vagina.
0: Yeah, like, ew, oh my god, he put it where?
1: Right, like, like if relax. it's not something that they heard in church, they have to do a whole thing about it to show, like, some weird combination of prurience and sexual experience.
0: hmm they have to be like, oh, well, that's not how people really do it.
1: Right, and you know what? I'm just gonna tell you all straight up, you all sound like fucking Ben Shapiro saying pussies shouldn't get wet. <laughs> Seriously. Like, sex is weird. It's embarrassing. It's very cringe.
0: It's, bodies are just infinitely weird, and the things that you can do with them are also infinitely weird.
1: You're basically and, slapping together hundreds of pounds of just, like, meat sweepings.
0: hmm Yeah, just, like, miscellaneous bits. There's no dignity in it. It's, it's, sex no. is very undignified. And trying to write sex in a way that makes it seem dignified or, like, cool, I guess. (laughs) I mean, sex is cool. Everybody knows sex is cool. But when you're trying to make it sound dignified,
1: it shows and it sounds fake.
0: And it's not hot.
1: Right. Because sex is sort of an abject act. You're being vulnerable with someone else or with someone else, in a way that you aren't in your daily life. And that is going to look repellent in a way, unavoidably and by design.
0: Yeah, I mean, the part of the allure of it is the possibility of losing yourself of being present, only in your body, um, right, of being unselfconscious. So I think it's very sad to bring the self-consciousness of the real world into, into sexuality and especially into writing about sex. And as writers, we have so much power to shape the way that people understand their relationship with sexuality. We can give them the words and the ideas that they haven't quite, they don't know how to put those things into words on their own. That is, it's, it's, it's so important.
1: (laughs) It is, you know, like reading, not just erotica, but like really horny, classic literature was a big part of figuring out the way that I liked to talk about my own body sexually. Mm -hmm. It gave me words that helped me feel more in myself and more connected to the reality of my body as it exists. And like, when you're writing about sex, your goal, it's like the cinema of sensation, you know? Horror is trying to make you afraid. Sex is trying to make you horny. Sex writing, erotica, is trying to make you horny. Even if the purpose of the writing is not
0: pornographic necessarily, like for you to connect with what's happening, you still want to be able to locate it in your body somehow, you want to be able to relate to the sensations that are happening.
1: Right, exactly. And I think, you know, I talk a lot about the ways in which art benefits from including weird looking people. Mm -hmm. And I think that actually applies here too, not just in the sex between weird looking people can be incredibly magnetic and mind blowing to see, whether or not you see yourself in there, it's it's just sort of a really, really different experience that our culture quietly treats as very taboo. But weird words, mm-hmm. highly specific language that communicates a personal experience of sex, you will have a deeper connection to the sex writing if you let yourself. This is why I think it's really important to
0: take in as wide a variety of Different types of erotic writing as you can, and also think about other types of sensations that can be related to that that you can kind of pull in to help describe those experiences.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like you should be reading horny fan fiction. You should be reading a Darius Nin. Like, yeah. There's, you know,
0: when you. This is something I think that's endemic in fanfic, especially that you can tell when a writer's experience of sex is mostly from reading other fanfic, because Mm -hmm. there's a there are certain like stock phrases that are repeated and certain like procedural elements that become kind of rote. Right. And there seems to be a way that not just in fanfic, but I think in mainstream fiction and in TV and film and things, there's there's a way that people expect to see sex described. And because it is so formulaic, like it doesn't really land. It doesn't make you feel very much. Absolutely. And by the same token, I think this is part of what we want to talk about. When people are writing about sex in a way that doesn't follow that formula, sometimes readers find it very awkward. <laughs> Yeah. And if they're going to be assholes about it, then they will take that awkwardness and hand it back to the writer. They'll say, well, it's your, you're, you're, this guy is the one that's being a weirdo. I'm not a weirdo. I would never talk about sex this way.
1: Hence, I'm normal. The endless Tumblr accounts and Twitter accounts that take sex writing out of context and basically just make a, like a sarcastic face about it. Um, I don't think that's how it works, actually. Right. And it's, you know, like I said, all you're doing is showing that your relationship to sex is frightened and limited and small. What could
0: she possibly, what, what, how, why would you want to be the guy who is only interested in super normal sex? Like, why would you decide to be that?
1: Right. What fucking benefit? You know, I mean, I know what the benefit is, which is that you never have to leave the comfort zone that your culture and upbringing have created for you. Everything outside of that is frightening and potentially aberrant. And then you have a sort of learned sense that it could cost you something were it to come out that you've engaged in something outside the main, you know, just recently there was that politician who got outed by a right wing publication for seeing a dominatrix. And very cleverly, he was just like, yeah, of course I'm into that shit. So what?
0: Yeah, it's and, actually very normal.
1: <laughs> yeah, and he turned the whole thing into like, well, actually, you invaded my privacy. And it's it appears to be working for him. Hell yeah. But my my point with all this is that when you react scornfully to sex that you have not personally experienced or that you haven't thought about, or maybe that you just kind of find icky for, for whatever reason, you're almost certainly echoing some kind of hegemonic sentiment that we've all internalized from our Christian European forebears. You know, yeah. we're, we're the, the power block that created the modern sexual moral code as, as we live in it now in America. And that was a coercively established and propagated thing.
0: Right. Designed to reinforce certain values and uphold certain power structures.
1: Right. And it didn't magically go away when people became aware of the word colonialism. (laughs) We're still living in it. We were all raised in it. Our loving parents who were so good to us or our terrible parents or whatever, any any cultural institution you've been exposed to in your life has been teaching the same values system to you.
0: The thing is that there is no normal way to have sex. There's no no, like one natural way to do it. The idea of humans doing things naturally is a myth because our big brains that make us act weird are also natural. Uh, (laughs) The natural world is, you know, infinitely perverse. And reacting to all kinds of unnatural influences. I read today, I don't know if this is true. It kind of sounds fake, but it's charming. So I'm going to say it anyway. I read today that koalas left their own devices, prefer lesbian group sex. That's very Which they engage in for several hours at a time.
1: (laughs) You know, there are a lot of animals that appear to be primarily homosexual in the wild. Mm Mm-hmm. Penguins have a ton of homosexual sex. Most male turkeys appear to be predominantly homosexual. Um, Yeah.
0: We have kind of a received idea that the natural world reflects this certain system of like the females are raising the babies and the men are protecting the territory and that like it's natural for the male to be dominant. And it is, you know, that women prefer monogamy, all this kind of stuff that, Victorian naturalists really made a point of making a case for like, this is how the animals do it. That proves that this is the natural order of things. And we still hang on to that, even though naturalists now know better. We like in the general consciousness, we haven't quite let go of that idea when in reality, even the animals that we were looking at, like swans and doves that are famously monogamous are not, in practice, really that monogamous. (laughs) Right. And, I mean, birds are a great example because most birds are very cooperative parents. Right. The
1: females are typically bigger and stronger.
0: Male pigeons, I think, in particular, the males and females switch off. They spend equal time sitting on the eggs. Mm -hmm. A lot of birds do that. And that sounds like an aberration, but it's not. It's, it's, that's as much the norm as it is for just the female parent to take care of the children.
1: Right. The only absolute norm is that there isn't one. You right. you can't apply a law to all of nature. It's just a big, stupid mess. But anyway, this idea that sex writing can be bad because it makes you uncomfortable is one that I think almost everyone would benefit from interrogating pretty intensely and over time. And there are a couple of sort of, pop-culturally infamous examples that we wanted to go over and sort of pick apart. Mm -hmm. Julia, do you want to start with your Virgin Suicides passage?
0: Oh, well, actually, I want to start with the Smilla's Sense of Snow one.
1: Oh, my God, yes. What a great one.
0: Okay, so I saw this one getting passed around quite a lot uh, a couple of months ago. And it's from the novel Smilla's Sense of Snow by Peter Hoog. So I'll read it and then we'll discuss it. Standing in the middle of the bedroom, we take off each other's clothes. He has a light, fumbling brutality, which several times makes me think that this time it'll cost me my sanity. In our dawning mutual intimacy, I induce him to open the little slit in the head of his penis so I can put my clitoris inside and fuck him. And invariably, I saw this posted with like, uh, I don't think that's how it works, actually. Oh, my fucking God. <laughs>
1: It's such a beautiful piece of writing. I mean, as prose, it's beautiful on its own. But as this expression of like atypical sexual need and want, it's so gorgeous and so exciting and interesting.
0: In the context of this dawning mutual intimacy, the act of of inserting the head of a clitoris into the slit in the penis is is... is feels so much more intimate than any description of sticking a penis in a vagina could be because it's unexpected because it is, it's these are parts that we don't necessarily deliberately want to touch. Like we don't try to put our clitoris in things. A lot of times we kind of like it's aberrant to try and stick things inside of a penis. Right. And all these things are, like these are very sensitive body parts that can be so powerful as sources of pleasure and intimacy.
1: And it makes me think of a wonderful moment in a, a sort of underseen HBO drama called Carnival, where a character who is a sex worker is about to sleep with her boyfriend for the first time. And as he's stripping, she says that she doesn't, want him in her cunt because that's where the johns go and so they have anal sex their first time together and it's you know it's, it's a little bit sort of trite but that sensation of doing something new and sort of unknown with a new sexual partner of breaching some kind of taboo or just stepping outside the social scripts that you're provided with That is a way to know yourself and to know someone else, which is ultimately a large part of sex.
0: It's a wonderful way of describing like when you're with somebody new, you are creating together a space that only exists when the two of you are intimate. And outside of that moment, outside of this particular coupling, it doesn't and can't exist. It's brand new country. And I think that you really get that sense with this passage. I think it's beautiful. I think it's very striking. I think I. I think that whether or not this is anatomically possible, which it is, by the way, uh, very easily, but it it is entirely beside the point.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that is so often the case with even the most outlandish sounding sexual acts in erotica. Oh yeah, I mean, some of the one of the purposes of erotica is to move past the physical spaces of the body and into sort of pulling the levers of sensation and desire behind them, Mm -hmm. irrespective of of what could actually happen in the real world. Because I mean, go have sex if that's what you're interested in. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But that we, we talked about this when we discussed Messalina on an earlier episode. Mm but the clitoris is so seldom discussed in terms of rigidity or burning or need the way that the cock is.
0: Yeah. When it's literally it's the same thing. Yeah. it's Literally a cock.
1: Um, it literally
0: just, just a little tweak of hormones and that is what it would have been Right. very easily a couple hours with a surgeon and it can be one again. I, yes.
1: <laughs> I don't know what right. to tell you, man. As someone who's had a lot of sex with trans men and trans masks, that's a cock. Mm -hmm. You can get fucked with it. Very (laughs) reasonable. And I think that
0: as much as, like, we're all in agreement that uh, the clitoris exists and is important, which, uh, you know, in some circles was a matter of debate not so long ago. Although most people were aware of it. Don't don't get me wrong. I think that the way that we talk about it is still very nervous and very prissy. <laughs> I think so too. Because we don't like to locate that kind of aggression and power there because it, it
1: fucks with our sense of gender. You know, if the clitoris can get erect... Then you have to start thinking about the mechanics of internal genitalia in a fundamentally different way than you've been taught to think of them.
0: Mm-hmm. which is yeah, as, like what if a vulva is a phallus, then where does right. that leave
1: you? <laughs> right. What does that mean about phalluses?
0: A phallus is a symbolic thing. It's you know, it's not exactly synonymous with a penis. A penis is not inherently a phallus. a phallus is, is the object of power that the penis becomes during sex. And a clitoris can also be that. Yes, it can. If we would only let it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I can we can imagine a better world.
0: here Here on the podcast, that world exists. yes all the all the parts are all the parts.
1: You know I mentioned anal a minute ago. Speaking of which, there's another line that occurred to me literally the instant that you said we should do an episode on bad sex writing. Uh-oh. And it's this moment in 50 Shades of Grey, which, you know, whatever, it's not a good book, but it doesn't really I haven't really read it, but I'm hoping that you're going to read a passage from it for me. I don't have a whole passage. I'm um, I very much apologize, but there's a scene in which the protagonist who is sort of exploring being the submissive to this wealthy, powerful finance guy or whatever he is, is talking about her asshole. And she calls it her chocolate starfish because I guess of the, the puckered shape of the anus. And people are still talking about this line. Like it's the most hellish embarrassing thing they can imagine. Like it's, the acme of bad writing. And E.L. James is is not a good writer. She overwrites everything. But when it comes to lines like that, you're talking about sites of symbolic degradation where the body is, is traditionally sort of untouchable and unclean. And you're taking that idea and you're transforming it. You're saying shit is food and the ring of my asshole is like this beautiful mysterious undersea organism Mm -hmm. like there's a lot going on there
0: yeah and like if the words that you know are not making you feel in the way that is conducive to what you want to experience then it makes sense to come up with other words
1: right exactly and something, you know, not everyone is going to like them, but you don't have to make a whole thing out of it. You sure I just don't. think that in erotica, it's so interesting and it can be so much fun to play with the way that we talk about different body parts. Mm-hmm. For instance, in sex writing, you will see overwhelmingly that breasts are firm and stand up and don't sag. Or that, I mean, you know what I'm talking about. There's just this sort of endless normative flow of yeah. erotica.
0: And it's is like so boring. It only is like that because that is what we know that it's supposed to be like.
1: Right. It's totally received wisdom. Nobody's bodies are like that except for, you know, boring, half starved models
0: And is that the most pleasurable kind of breast to touch? No. I'm not saying it's not. I'm saying there is no most pleasurable kind of breast to touch.
1: Right. The most pleasurable kind of breast to touch is whatever breast you're touching. Yeah.
0: They all have their
1: charms. They truly do. For instance, the very much undersung joy of the tiny little breasts. Just a wonderful thing. Like a little teacup.
0: (laughs) I mean... You'll get no argument here. The, the podcasters are, are card-carrying members of the IBTC. I'm going to grab my copy of The Name of the Rose.
1: Oh, good call.
0: Do you have any examples from the Song of Ice and Fire?
1: Uh, I do have a couple. Let's hear them. All right. So the first one we actually talked about fairly recently, which is when Sam Tarly looks down at his own erect penis and he thinks of it as a fat pink mast.
0: We love the fat
1: pink mast. Me too. I think it's a wonderful piece of sex writing. And, you know, I talked about, I talked last time about how it's sort of dissociative. It's this person who's been completely separated from any kind of positive relationship to his body, forced to connect with it as he encounters being desired for the first time, which is something that, Basically, no books touch. I mean, it's it's nuts that in books, where you're not even looking at people, there are almost no fat people, which is absolutely crazy. There's no constraints. You can do whatever you want. And still, everyone looks like they belong on a CW show. But when you talk about a body like Sam's and you talk about the language that he uses to describe his own body as he sort of discovers it, you get into this whole richer territory where you're touching sort of the the fundament Mm -hmm. of sexual excitement and the way that it connects to the rest of our psychosexual image of ourselves. Like, how does someone who has been very badly abused and been told their entire life that they're ugly and worthless because they're fat, how does that person experience sexual desire? Right. I can tell you, it's it's not normal.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I think that most people, well, not to universalize my own feelings, a lot of people like me, for example, when we look at our bodies in a self-critical way. We have like certain scripts that we run through certain things that we notice about ourselves and criticize. Sometimes we echo things that other people have said to us that hurt. And that's not ideal. We should all try not to do that. But also I think it's really powerful that we kind of see Sam doing that in this moment and being desired anyway. Yeah, Because that's, that's what it takes to transcend that, like not for him to have a penis that le- looks less like a th- fat pink mast, but to understand that that is a desirable thing to be. You know what I mean? I do. It's like I was talking yeah. about the other day about how you kind of have to like, let the thoughts happen and let them go. That's exactly it. It's sometimes in, you know, sex is, a very vulnerable place and you are gonna have weird ugly thoughts about your body (laughs) yeah for real and it's fucking allowed it's allowed to feel like that you can have those feelings and and still enjoy yourself
1: yes and if you never square that circle it can take so much longer to get through that to the sort of Self-knowledge that makes sex easier.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, because the alternative is just to like hold out and repress and hope that someday your body is not a body that makes you feel disgust.
1: Right. and
0: Which is not going to happen no matter what your body ever looks like, I promise. Yes, this will never happen. If you
1: <laughs> make parts of your life conditional on what your body looks like, you will not live. Yeah. I just... It breaks my heart to see people being like, Well, I just have such a rough time with my body that I'm not going to have sex anymore.
0: Yeah, not until I start working out or.
1: Right. Or I lose this amount of weight. And like, you know, you can't make decisions for anyone no matter how much you love them and no matter how correct you are about what their problems are. But it's terrible to see someone mistreat themselves like that. And I think. At its root, it has the same cause that leads people to mock sex writing that they see as cringy or weird, mm-hmm. which is that they're afraid of being ridiculed and yeah. they're, they're afraid that they'll do it wrong.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really poignant feeling, like the fear of being exposed as as weird or inexperienced or awkward or not sophisticated, which to be perfectly clear is what you do when you make fun of the way that other people have sex. Right. There's nothing more provincial than that.
1: Right. We're all looking and realizing what your relationship to sex is. So stop doing that.
0: Okay. And don't like,
1: get all (laughs) repressed about it. Go out and, you know, read some shit, have some weird sex.
0: So I want to read this passage from The uh, *The Name of the Rose by Umberto Eco, because it's one of my favorite sex scenes of all time. And so this is a story is a murder mystery that takes place in a 14th century Italian monastery. Uh, and the narrator character is a young novice monk. I think he's about 15. And he kind of accidentally happens upon a local peasant girl who seduces him in the what's it called you know where they keep the stores of the food and stuff. Right. Um, The cellar. Yeah, the cellar. Thank you. I'm like, you know, where the cellar works. (laughs) The cellar. But because he's lived in a monastery all his life, his like he is aware of sexuality, but he doesn't have language for it. So the way that he describes it is very oblique. All right, so I'm going to read this. What did I feel? What did I see? I remember only that the emotions of the first moment were bereft of any expression because my tongue and my mind had not been instructed in how to name sensations of that sort. Until I recalled other inner words heard in another time and in other places, spoken certainly for other ends, but which seemed wondrously in keeping with my joy in that moment, as if they had been born consubstantially to express it, Words pressed into the cavern of my memory rose to the dumb surface of my lips, and I forgot that they had served in scripture or in the pages of the saints to express quite different, more radiant realities. But was there truly a difference between the delights of which the saints had spoken and those that my agitated spirit was feeling at that moment? At that moment, the watchful sense of difference was annihilated in me, and this, it seems to me, is precisely the sign of rapture in the abysses of identity. Suddenly, the girl appeared to me as the black but calmly virgin of whom the Song of Songs speaks. She wore a threadbare little dress of rough cloth that opened in a fairly immodest fashion over her bosom. And around her neck was a necklace made of little colored stones, very commonplace, I believe. But her head rose proudly on a neck as white as an ivory tower. Her eyes were clear as the pools of Heshbon. Her nose was as the Tower of Lebanon, her hair like purple. Yes, her tresses seemed to me like a flock of goats, her teeth like flocks of sheep coming up from their path, from their bath, all in pairs, so that none preceded its companion. And I could not help murmuring, behold, thou art fair, my love, behold, thou art fair. Thy hair is as a flock of goats that lie among the side of Mount Gilead. Thy lips are like a thread of scarlet. Thy temples are like a piece of a pomegranate. Thy neck is like the Tower of David, whereupon there hang a thousand bucklers. And I asked myself, frightened and rapt, Who was she who rose before me like the dawn, beautiful as the moon, radiant as the sun? Terribilis ut castorum acies ordinata. Then the creature came still closer to me throwing into a corner the dark package she had till then held pressed to her bosom, and she raised her hand to stroke my face and repeated the words I had already heard. And while I did not know whether to flee from her or move even closer, while my head was throbbing as if the trumpets of Joshua were about to bring down the walls of Jericho, as I yearned and at once feared to touch her, she smiled with great joy, emitted the stifled moan of a pleased she-goat, and undid the strings that closed her dress over her bosom. Slipped the dress from her body like a tunic, and stood before me as Eve must have appeared to Adam in the Garden of Edom. Pulcrosunt ubera quae paulum. Su- <laughs> oh my God, all this Latin. Supereminent et tumunt modice, I murmured, repeating the words I had heard from Ubertino, because her breasts appeared to me like two fawns that are the twins of a roe, feeding among the lilies. Her navel was a goblet wherein no mingled wine is wanting her belly a heap of wheat set about with lilies. O Cidus clarum pilarum, I cried to her, O Porta Clausa, Fons hortorum, Cela custos unguentorum, Cela pigmentaria. Inadvertently I found myself against her body, feeling its warmth and the sharp perfume of unguents never known before. I remembered, sons, when mad love comes, man is powerless, and I understood that Whether what I felt was a snare of the enemy or a gift of heaven, I was now powerless against the impulse that moved me. And I cried, O langueo, and causum languoris video necaueo. Also because a rosy perfume breathed from her lips and her feet were beautiful in sandals, and her legs were like columns and jewels were the joints of her thighs, the work of the hands of a cunning workman. O oh, love, daughter of delights, a king is held captive in your trusses, I murmured to myself, and I was in her arms, and we fell together onto the bare floor of the kitchen, and whether on my own initiative or through her wiles, I found myself free of my novice's habit, and we felt no shame at our bodies and kunkta erat bona. And she kissed me with the kisses of her mouth, and her loves were more delicious than wine, and her ointments had a goodly fragrance. And her neck was beautiful among pearls, and her cheeks among earrings. Behold, thou art fair, my beloved, behold, thou art fair. Thine eyes are as doves, I said. And let me see thy face, let me hear thy voice, for thy voice is harmonious, and thy face is enchanting. Thou hast ravished my heart, my sister, thou hast ravished my heart with one of thine eyes, with one chain of thy neck, thy lips drop as the honeycomb. Honey and milk are under thy tongue, the smell of thy breath is of apples, thy two breasts are clusters of grapes, thy palate is a heady wine that goes straight to my love and flows over my lips and teeth, a fountain sealed, spikenard and saffron calamus and cinnamon myrrh and aloes i've eaten my honeycomb with my honey i've drunk my wine with my milk who was she who was she who rose like the dawn fair as the moon clear as the sun terrible as an army with banners O lord when the soul is transported the only virtue lies in loving what you see is that not true the supreme happiness in having what you have there is blissful life There, blissful life is drunk at its source has this not been said There you savor the true life that we will live after this mortal life among the angels for all eternity. This is what I was thinking. And it seemed to me the prophecies were being fulfilled at last as the girl lavished indescribable sweetness on me. And it was as if my whole body were an eye before and behind and I could suddenly see all surrounding things. And I understood that from it, from love, unity and tenderness are created together as are good and kiss and fulfillment as I had already heard believing I was being told about something else, and only for an instant as my joy was about to reach its zenith did I remember that perhaps I was experiencing, and at night, the possession of the noontime devil who was condemned finally to reveal himself in his true diabolical nature to the soul that in ecstasy asks, who are you, who knows how to grip the soul and delude the body, But I was immediately convinced that my scruples were indeed devilish, for nothing could be more right and good and holy than what I was experiencing, the sweetness of which grew with every moment. As a little drop of water added to a quantity of wine is completely dispersed and takes on the color and taste of wine, as red-hot iron becomes like molten fire losing its original form, as air when it is inundated with the sun's light is transformed into total splendor and clarity so that it no longer seems illuminated, but rather seems to be light itself. So I felt myself die of tender liquefaction, and I had only the strength left to murmur the words of the psalm. Behold, my bosom is like new wine, sealed which bursts new vessels, and suddenly I saw a brilliant light, and in it a saffron-colored form which flamed up in a sweet and shining fire, and that splendid light spread all through the shining fire, and this shining fire through that golden form and that brilliant light and that shining fire through the whole form. As half-fainting I fell on the body to which I had joined myself, I understood in a last vital spurt that flame consists of a splendid clarity, an unusual vigor, and an igneous ardor, but it possesses the splendid clarity so that it may illuminate and the igneous ardor that it may burn. Then I understood the abyss and the deeper abysses that it conjured up. How about that? God, what an incredible scene. It's so incredible. And it's so powerful because he is so lost in how to describe it. And he keeps having to yeah. resort to the things that he knows, which are the scriptures.
1: It, um, it reminds me a lot of uh, one of Shakespeare's sonnets, which opens with the line, My lover's eyes are nothing like the sun.
0: Oh, I know that one. Uh, My mistress eyes are nothing like the sun. Coral is far more red than her lips Red. If snow be white, why then her breasts are done. If hair be wires, black wires grow from her head. I grant I never saw a goddess go. My mistress, when she walks, treads on the ground. That's all I know. I don't know anymore after that. That That's pretty good, though.
1: Yeah, I'm <laughs> impressed. I haven't I haven't read that poem in like thirteen years. That
0: was a favorite of my ex husband. He used to recite it pretty often. That's why I know it.
1: Ah, uh, and it's either later in that poem or in a a sort of paired sonnet that he makes all of these at first seemingly superlative comparisons that when you stop and think are are sort of nonsensical and unflattering, but that has its own kind of beauty. Because like you said, I mean, the character here, Adso of Milk, is gone. He's completely transported into this experience. And so eyelids fluttering are doves to him. And Mm -hmm. drool on his face is a honeycomb and milk. And it's so, I mean, this is this is the essential duty of anyone who believes in the power of art is to take the quotidian, the everyday, and find the divine in it. Mm-hmm. It's incredibly moving.
0: Yeah. And elsewhere in the book, before and after he, but especially after when he thinks back on this happening, he's kind of like, well, you know, obviously I was you know being seduced by devils and stuff he right before the part where i stopped reading he's like look i know that this is all incredibly heretical and i'm just trying to tell you what i thought at that time even though i realize now that it was because this girl was a witch or something that i was having these thoughts and it's part of the framing device of the name of the rose which is that it is a translation of a translation of a a person's journal of a thing that happened so it's not it's it this is echoes first novel and he has that scholar's nervousness about specificity about saying this is definitely what happened so he sets up the a lot of qualifiers and one of them is adzo himself being like look i would never say this <laughs> which is really fun like i love that as a framing device one of my favorite short stories Claremont by uh theophile Gautier, i think his name is is like a really sexy story about I, the the subtitle of it is la morte Amoureuse, the dead woman in love i guess and it's uh, about a man who falls in love with a sort of a vampire and it's like super hot it's he's a priest also <laughs> and he falls in love with her and then he's like uh, that that is ridiculous uh and he takes his vows, and then she shows up, and he's like, Oh shit, she was real. <laughs> anyway, uh, you can read it online for free. It is pretty old. But like the very end of it is like, I committed so many fucked up sins with her. Can you believe this? I'm just telling you this so that you
1: never do this. <laughs> um, I love that. That's wonderful. I'm going oh, to have to so that.
0: Oh my gosh, you haven't read that?
1: I've never read it.
0: Okay. I'll send it to you. I'm a huge fan. You will love it.
1: Of course you will. It makes me think of one of my favorite Clive Barker short stories, Jacqueline S. Her Will and Testament, where Mm -hmm. this extremely unsatisfied married woman, Jacqueline, discovers that she can telekinetically command bodies. And she discovers this when her husband is blabbing at her and she thinks that she wishes he would shut up and his face compacts in on itself. Oh, and much of the rest of the story is told from the perspective of one of her lovers after this initial murder. And he talks about, how difficult it is for him to understand why he exposed himself to her over and over again, knowing that she could kill him with a thought. Hell yeah. And how terrified he was when she would fall asleep and her power without conscious direction would cause her skin to ripple across her bones or billow out so that he could see Her organs, just this sense of like sex is something that's not just dangerous and risky, but a line between life and death and salvation and damnation. Hell yeah. I have a much shorter extract that I'd like to read before we finish.
0: Let's hear it. You read that one. We'll talk about it. Then I'll do my virgin suicides
1: one. Beautiful. Then we'll call it a night. This is... From Nabokov's Lolita. Mm-hmm. My only grudge against nature was that I could not turn my Lolita inside out and apply voracious lips to her young matrix, her unknown heart, her nacreous liver, the sea grapes of her lungs, her comely twin kidneys. This is a a passage that was enormously influential to me.
0: Yeah, this is such a Gretchen passage. Gretchen loves right. sexy guts.
1: Oh, I do. I love, I love sexy viscera. I feel like what could be more intimate than kissing the surface of a beating heart or holding it in your hand.
0: Mm -hmm. I mean, and I think that we begin to approach that when we think of the eroticism inherent in being inside another person, but we just don't take it far enough.
1: We do not. Like all forms of human connection, sex is an attempt to ameliorate the tragedy of being human, which is that we're separate from each other. Yes. And through the power of your imagination, you can breach that barrier again and again and again and come to a a thousand imaginary unions. I think that's a very beautiful thing to imagine being part of someone else. And to imagine finally throwing aside that veil. The intimacy of that is so
0: good. It's just very good. Yeah. Okay. You want to hear this Virgin Suicides passage? I would love to. Okay. So the Virgin Suicides is a book by Jeffrey Eugenides that came out sometime in the 90s. And then it was made into a a film in maybe like 98 or 99 by Sofia Coppola. I read it just before the movie came out, I think I was probably 16 or 17. So I had a different relationship with it than I do now. But I really loved it. And I still love it, which may be a holdover from when it was important to me when I was young. But this is – so there's five young women who are sisters, the Lisbon girls. And the middle one named Lux, there's this very popular young man called Trip Fontaine – who wants to take her out. He wants to invite her to the homecoming or something. And um, they're not really allowed to date, but he is allowed to come over for dinner. They're very strict, her her family. So trying to see how far back I should go here. It's pretty fun, the entire description of him coming over for dinner. Okay. I think I'm just going to read the whole dinner date part. That's only an extra page. Okay but part of the reason that I'm reading this to you is that the way that the sexuality describes is described is so unexpected. Okay. Trip Fontaine became the first boy after Peter Sisson to enter the Lisbon house alone. He did so simply by telling Lux when he would arrive and leaving her to tell her parents, none of us, the other boys in the neighborhood or the narrators of the book, none of us could explain how we had missed him. "'especially as he insisted during his interview "'that he had taken no stealthy measures, "'driving up in plain sight and parking his Trans Am "'in front of an elm stump so it wouldn't get covered with sap. "'He had had his hair cut for the occasion, "'and instead of a Western get-up, "'he wore a white shirt and black pants like a caterer. "'Lux met him at the door, without, "'and without saying much, she was keeping track of her knitting, "'led him to his assigned seat in the living room. "'He sat on the couch beside Mrs. Lisbon,' with Lux on her other side. Trip Fontaine told us the girls paid him little attention, certainly less than a school heartthrob would expect. Therese sat in the corner holding a stuffed iguana and explaining to Bonnie what iguanas ate, how they reproduced, and what their natural habitat was like. The only sister who spoke to Tripp was Mary, who kept offering to refill his coke. A Walt Disney special was on, and the Lisbons watched it with the acceptance of a family accustomed to bland entertainment laughing together at the same lame stunts, sitting up during the rigged climaxes. Tripfontaine didn't see any signs of twistedness in the girls, but later he did say, you would have killed yourself just to have something to do. Mrs. Lisbon oversaw Lux's knitting. Before the channel could be changed, she consulted TV Guide to judge the program's suitability. The curtains were thick as canvas. A few spindly plants sat on the window sill, and this differed so much from his own leafy living room, Mr. Fontaine was a gardening buff, that Tripp would have felt he was on a dead planet had it not been for the pulsing life of Lux at the sofa's other end. He could see her bare feet every time she put them up on the coffee table. The soles were black, her toenails flecked with pink polish. Each time they appeared, Mrs. Lisbon tapped them with a knitting needle, driving them back under the table. And that was all that happened. Tripp didn't get to sit next to Lux, nor speak to her, nor even look at her, but the bright nearby fact of her presence burned in his mind. At ten o'clock, taking a cue from his wife, Mr. Lisbon slapped Trip on the back and said, Well, son, we usually hit the hay about now. Tripp shook his hand. Then Mrs. Lisbon's colder one, and Lux stepped forward to escort him out. She must have seen the situation was futile, because she hardly looked at him during the short trip to the door. She walked with her head down, digging in her ear for wax and looked up as she opened the door to give him a sad smile that promised only frustration. Trip Fontaine left crushed, knowing that all he could hope for was another night on the sofa beside Mrs. Lisbon. He walked across the lawn, unmoaned since Cecilia died. He sat in his car, gazing at the house, watching as downstairs lights traded places with those upstairs, and then, one by one, went out. He thought about Lux getting ready for bed and just the idea of her holding a toothbrush excited him more than the full-fledged nudity he saw in his own bedroom nearly every night. He laid his head back on the headrest and opened his mouth to ease the constriction in his chest when suddenly the air in the car churned. He felt himself grasped by his long lapels, pulled forward and pushed back, as a creature with a hundred mouths started sucking the marrow from his bones. She said nothing as she came on like a starved animal, and he wouldn't have known who it was if it hadn't been for the taste of her watermelon gum, which, after the first few torrid kisses, he found himself chewing. She was no longer wearing pants, but a flannel nightgown. Her feet, wet from the lawn, gave off a pasture smell. He felt her clammy shins, her hot knees, her bristly thighs, and then with terror, he put his finger in the ravenous mouth of the animal leashed below her waist. It was as though he had never touched a girl before. He felt fur. And an oily substance like otter insulation. Two beasts lived in the car, one above snuffling and biting him, one below struggling to get out of its damp cage. Valiantly, he did what he could to feed them, placate them, but the sense of his insufficiency grew, and after a few minutes, with only the words, gotta get back before bed check, Lux left him more dead than alive. Even though the lightning attack lasted only three minutes, it left its mark on him, He spoke of it as one might of a religious experience, a visitation or vision, any rupture into this life from beyond that cannot be described in words. Sometimes I think I dreamed it, he told us, recalling the veracity of those hundred mouths that had sucked out his juice in the dark. And even though he went on to enjoy an enviable love life, Tripp Fontaine confessed that it was all anticlimactic. Never again were his intestines yanked with such delectable force nor did he ever again feel the sensation of being entirely wetted by another's saliva. "'I felt like a stamp,' he said. Years later, he was still amazed by Lux's singleness of purpose, her total lack of inhibitions, her mythic mutability that allowed her to possess three or four arms at once. "'Most people never taste that kind of love,' he said, taking courage amid the disaster of his life. "'At least I tasted it once, man.' In comparison, the loves of his early manhood and maturity were docile creatures with smooth flanks and dependable outcries. Even during the act of love, he could envision them bringing him hot milk, doing his taxes, or presiding tearfully at his deathbed. They were warm, loving, hot water bottle women. Even the screamers of his adult years always hit false notes, and no erotic intensity ever matched the silence in which Lux flayed him alive. (laughs) That's really good, right? Holy shit, that's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. I love, like, the way that, like, Adso, and I'm sorry that both of these examples are of teenagers. Teenage sex doesn't particularly interest me. (laughs) But I love that in this example, like Adso, he is kind of, like, struggling to find the words to describe it. Like otter insulation. Because he's right. been watching like the magical world of Disney all night. And he's just like, I don't know. Uh.
1: <laughs> right. It's so uncalculated.
0: Mm-hmm. And it's the
1: first thing that comes to mind.
0: The eroticism of him. I mean, obviously he knows who it is, but saying that he wouldn't have known who it was until he tasted the gum that she left in his mouth from kissing him. Like oh, she doesn't even take God. the gum out of her mouth. There's this, like the, artlessness and the ferocity of it is i mean they're kind of one in the same yeah they are it's very exciting and could very easily be taken out of context to be made ridiculous
1: as like someone who had a strict religious upbringing that sensation of sitting across from sitting separated by a parent <laughs> from your object of desire is so real and like the burning unbearable eroticism of the bare feet and toothbrushes and all things like that
0: her flannel nightgown Ugh. and how like Very part good. of what is referenced here is that you know this is the 70s people are pretty sexually open in a way that kind of waned when AIDS became a thing in the eighties. And, um, Tripp is like very sexually active. He's like very handsome, very popular high school girls and older women are offering themselves to him all the time. So, you know, the pathology of his particularly desiring this one girl that is so difficult for him to have is not, doesn't go unremarked on, you know, I think right. it's, uh, it's pretty obvious, but it's lovely that 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 framing of it makes it so that these very mundane things about her, the black soles of her feet, the way that she smells like a pasture, things that to somebody else might be really unsexy and really mood-killing are so erotic to him because they're so different from what he normally experiences, which is, like we were talking about earlier, a kind of false rote performance of sexuality.
1: Right. People who are doing what they think they should be doing. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Instead of what sort of their their animus compels them to do. Mm-hmm. Lex Lisbon
0: is, I mean, that was definitely like a formative character for me, as I'm sure she was for a lot of women of my generation. Anyway, we were going to do a, a virgin suicides book club, you and I, but we haven't got okay. around to it yet. I would still love to do that. Yeah, we should. All right, let's wrap it so- up, unless we got a
1: question hanging on the line that we want to look at. No, I think, I think we've only got one and it can wait until next week. Excellent. Till next week, then. Go have some sex, guys.
0: Yeah, try and do that. You've been listening to the Lament Configuration podcast. It's a podcast about things that make Julia and Gretchen sad. You can follow us on all the podcast platforms. You know that because you're listening. And leave us a review if you like. Join our Discord if you like. And, uh, I don't know, keep circulating the tapes.